Rick Madison here, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Al Hildebrand. Welcome, Al. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well. Um, we're going to get into the definition of what impact tomorrow is. Um, and I know that you're you're a very conscious individual and you're trying to help a number of different enterprises. I, I ran into uh, Coach Dino Gini and hmm. he sang your praises. So that's why you're on the show. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Dino. <laughs> so what I wanted to mention is, like I said, before we get into the definition, why do you want to help? I mean, you you could be golfing or playing pickleball or doing any number of things what gets you up every day like what what is the purpose of of doing what you do because i know you don't these are long hours these are long days there's lots of different phone calls and emails and a whole bunch of other things why are you doing these things you know it's um a continuation of my business career i technically retired in 2015 uh from my work job which was qhr technologies at the time and uh, since then i haven't been able to figure out how somebody pays me to do work um, and, you know, what I've decided to do is use my business experience for the good of the greater community. And there's so many causes, there's so many great organizations in this town that we could help. I'm not trying to recreate the wheel on anything, because mm -hmm. if you're operating and doing a good job, well, let's put some more power behind them, be it money, be it energy, be it expertise. And so I just decided that I'm just going to use that. I'm not a type of person that's going to go south too long, too often. Right. Uh, I'm not a golfer. Uh, it may be the occasional charity game, but I'm not into that. And so I don't think I've stopped working since my retirement. It's just that I do things differently now and, for a different purpose. And are you happy doing that? Like, is, does that float your boat? I am. And, you know, and, and when people like you mentioned, Dean or Jeannie, uh, yeah. they came up um, shortly uh, after the after the uh, COVID thing started. Most of their event fundraising for the college, uh, the Coyotes, was in-person events. And they had to change their model. They had mm -hmm. to figure out how are they going to do something to raise the funds for the program because the program is still going on. So we had to think creatively. And every different agency, every different project is different. So we had to figure out a way which, who could help support this and be the backstop to it. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a plan where six families said, well, we'll match you. We'll do half. And we found now, the six. Now let's back okay. up a little bit. So is that from your Rolodex? Uh, both. Uh, obviously, there's not too many people got a Rolodex as big as Dino's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we already had some of that in place. But you still have to package it in a way that's workable in a new way. And they really have to learn how do they go online with fundraising? How do they do things different than just having something at the college? Mm -hmm. You know, and so it, it, that was where I realized I can be of some help to them. Uh, it worked. Uh, we helped them raise $130,000, which is what they needed for that to complete that season. Um, I'm sure he's going to come knocking again soon. <laughs> and, you know, it just, uh, how do you, uh, how far out, you have to be able to quantify what you're looking for, why, and what it's going to do, and how can the contributors, if it's donors, mm -hmm. how can they help? Okay. And now tell me a bit about Impact Tomorrow, because we didn't really get into that. We, we talked about the why, why you get up and do that sort of thing, but but why specifically, uh, so give people an it's you know, as simplistic as we can, uh, what is impact tomorrow? What are they supposed to do? Well, I sort of got into that portion by accident following my work career, which, as I mentioned, was uh, 20, until 2015. And then we uh, started working on several local projects. Uh, we got ourselves involved personally with the Foundry Kelowna, which is a project of CMHA and KGH Foundation. And I was able to learn how those two great organizations work together to help start Foundry Kelowna, which is, you know, is for mental health to, from kids 12 to 24. And that's my first taste of how these good organizations look at and how they do some things. And then um, we uh, got involved in several other things that we had to, uh, decided to get involved with building out a child advocacy center, which is for the investigation and treatment of uh, child abuse, mm -hmm. uh, which is a whole big topic on its own. And we needed to have a charitable organization in which to raise funds because nobody's going to give you funds if they can't get a tax receipt. Fair. That's how I got into that. Okay. So we took over an organization and that was the roots of starting Impact More Foundation. So between the two of those, um, I mean, those are all wonderful organizations. And I know a bit about the Foundry and of course the Child Advocacy Center is I mean, if, if anybody doesn't know that story, that is a, that's a story that you're going to need some time on and it's going to really 
it, it's going to shake you to your very foundation. So let's just, well, that's a teaser, as yeah. they say in the media business. But I think um, those two things, so was that the driving force for you was to, if, if I'm to understand it correctly, you were taking things that weren't currently being done and perhaps adding your business expertise and, and maybe pushing more towards digital online in, in some cases, wherever the, I guess, the mechanisms needed it. Is that kind of? Yeah. The, if you take a look at the mental health project, that taught me a whole lot about the mental health side of the equation, which I didn't really know that much about. Uh, turns out I had a lot more issues than I thought I did, <laughs> as all of us do, you know. Um, and then when I saw the, uh, as we started building the CAC, I knew that was only for a segment of population that goes up to 18. Well, there's a whole bunch of people that are dealing with abuse and mental health issues that are older than 18. Mm-hmm. It happened on the street right. in many cases, or they're soon to be on the street. So that led me down to the, what's, how do I think about things that are not being done today? Um, so whether it's from a funding perspective, most of our projects are funding based. Mm-hmm. We help people raise funds, or or it's taking a direct action to make something started. That's what we did with the CAC. Built it, turned it over to a separate society that's running it now. Because I'm I I don't necessarily like running day to day operations. It's about getting things Go started. Go get it done, and then yeah, okay. So you're an impact guy. Like you're you're a business guy looking at social enterprises and and really adding the cadence and pace to that. Because sometimes, having been a part of various boards, and and because of my short attention span, I want things to get going. I want an agenda. I want it fast. I want twenty minute meetings. Like I want to get things rolling. Do you find that that there's sometimes a, a discord between you know, really socially conscious people, perhaps volunteers and the business side of things. So the best way I can describe it is um, what are they doing personally to make an impact? So whether you're a donor or a contributor or a volunteer, what are they doing to make a difference on tomorrow's issues, but they're doing it today? Mm. And so sometimes you have to think way in, way in advance of the future if it's not being done today. And I guess that's part of my motivation is to try to help people think about what can be done if money was available. Ah. Now, it's not that we have a big bank account. We have to go find it mm-hmm. on every single project. But if you can articulate what what they're doing, why they want to do that, whether it's the next phase or a startup, uh, and then how are you going to get there with the right people in place? You, you, you tend to look for excellence. So excellence in operation, excellent experience. They already know what they're doing in that field. They just don't have the building or the facility or the organization to get that work done. So that's that's what I try to concentrate on. Okay. Um, but what I wanted to ask about is I was part of the United Way Impact team. So we go around and we, based on how that organization is running, there's quite a few metrics. We try to determine how the money has the most impact out of, you know, because there's a set budget there's not limitless flat funds, so we have to figure out, okay, which one of these is going to do the most with an organization? Is there, in your eyes, maybe a top three for charities to be mindful of in order to be sustainable, to have the most impact? And I would say the word would be relevance. Would you have a top three for you? Yes. Um, is So there's there's quiet money. There's public money that does things for recognition. And then there's the ongoing stuff, the little stuff, but they add up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly in which fail that happens in the United Way project itself here, but probably all three in that area. So if you can find a cause that has the potential of regular people given $100 a month or whatever it happens to be, and they believe in the cause and they're regulars, that's huge. It's called reoccurring revenue. But you also, for the major projects, need the bigger guys that are making a bigger commitment. Most often, that's quiet money. They don't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. But if you can find that, and if that quiet money can be used as a match. So if you can do the matching component and help organize a match for the regular other donors here, that's where you help that organization really accent, uh, accelerate their dollars, which is, quite frankly, what we did with Dino's campaign with the Okanagan College. Right. Okay. And and you were drawn to that because, you know, I of course, Doug Sperling and Dino Genie are, are just... Uh, well, they're amazing people, and I think they're building better human beings, too. They don't just have a basketball program. They have a human being program, and yeah. it's all about family and connection and doing 
as much as you can for your teammate, for your community and everything else. Was that the story that, that was kind of resonating with these big donors that we're talking about? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I, I mean, I personally knew of him back when he was doing the high school program from before. I had uh, seen some kids growing up from high school to college age going through that program. But when he came to look for help on that part of it, I said, you know what, that's not really my mandate. I'm not doing it. But after a while, I figured, well, maybe it is because we're helping the kids get better at what they're doing, work through the project, and you're right, become better human beings. They're actually teaching kids how to be a global citizen. Mm-hmm. And if you can actually put those things together in that area, then then you've got something. And I, I knew firsthand the results that he had achieved with some of the people that I knew personally from mm-hmm. my community. So I said, yeah, this is this is a worthwhile project. And I think that then transcended to the other ones who already knew of that themselves. Mm-hmm. But that the matching part came together actually pretty easy. Right. Then you have to set up an online presence where they can actually pitch it, market it, sell the, you know, sell right. the opportunity and get the job done. So it's interesting you talking about the human beings. So I, I taught at the college teaching marketing and I had a couple of different uh, basketball players in my in my class. And what I was really excited about was they were doing some of my tests on to the game, to the practice, in the car, just trying to to make sure that they stayed abreast of the grades. And they were putting in extra effort. And their tenacity on the court showed through in their tenacity with the course because Mm -hmm. they had to be a bit of both in order to excel. And uh, I I do not suffer anyone that doesn't do the work. And these two in in specifics, they were really good at, at doing the work. And I think that athletics, and I don't think it can be understated, athletics in any regard, um, teaches you teamwork, teaches you about, you know, competition. Like the world is not just going to give you anything. You have to go take it at times. And I think that's what I really saw resonated with with these two students. So I have, an, um, I have a client who says there's one overriding quality with the people that he will hire for his company. And that is uh, curiosity. He says if they, if they ever stop learning, they're not actually a valuable member of, of his organization, which is a medical office. In, in your eyes, is there a component for, for people that they need a quality they need to have in order to be successful in, in today's crazy society? You know, I would, yeah, there is one uh, that I've thought about and I've used it in my own family for years. And uh, I think that's getting the kids working early for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Being in especially work where they are serving others in some way, shape, or form. Uh, with Great Real Pride, all three of my kids worked at McDonald's in their younger days. But they learned how human beings treat people behind the counter, how they work, interact with others. And it's not always an easy job. No, when no, you do it that isn't. Type of thing. But if you can learn the disciplines that good organizations have put in place, then they will be good, better people for that. They're learning from a wealth of knowledge of people, the entrepreneurs, and have systemized something. Mm-hmm. And no matter where it is, you know, if they if they are dependent on mom and dad's bucks to live, they're not going to be as effective as if they've had to do it on their own. So that's interesting. You're saying working for someone else, and there's a reason for that. Why? Why is the reason why? Because a lot of people have their own family-based business. Why is it important for that child to work for somebody else? Because that that was a key part of what you just said. Right. It's not that they haven't worked for me as well, mm-hmm. but they learned some stuff early from working with other people as well. They saw us how we worked in our family. Mm-hmm. But that's a very set uh, sector of business economy here, whereas the, if they can be broadened out a bit, some other experiences, it's not going to hurt them. Mm-hmm. And in effect, they then came back into the business with a lot more knowledge and experience. But it's mostly about how to interact with other people that they gain by that. Yeah, uh, I may not have been able to give that to entirely them in my own business. Mm-hmm. It's funny because uh, when I when I look at people that have worked for other companies, then they come back to the family business. It feels like, or it looks like to me, because I've I've worked for multi generational families where they have, you know, it's second or third generation running the family business. They have to have some some degree of success elsewhere in order to have the confidence in order to deal with adversity in the family business. So they have something that's their own that they've championed and they've worked at it and they did it without any family. And I think that's the key component. I think that many families that have children working in their in their family business here 
uh, get tainted with a negative brush about their last name, mm-hmm. whoever it happened to be. And if they have some credibility on their own, then it's a big deal. Uh, you know, it, it helps them in terms of understanding management, especially management issues mm-hmm. and how to deal with people. So uh, never begrudge getting out there, doing something on your own and making something of yourself. But, but going aside from that, Al, I want to talk a bit about retirement and, and how you didn't retire at all. Um, did you try retiring? Like, did you actually give it a go and, and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start walking. I'm going to start hiking. I'm going to start golfing. I'm going to start traveling. You know, all those things that people talk about doing, but it seems to me that the people that have really retired well stay, they have, they have a purpose driven life. And, and is that the key to retire well? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm a, I, I tell everybody I'm not a workaholic. I can stop whenever I want. But that's not really true. <laughs> As most yeah. people do. Yeah. But what I did do is things like um, I started watching what other successful uh, older people are doing. Like, um, uh, you know, and, and like I happened to be on the street one time doing some traffic duty and I saw Cliff Serwell biking past me going like, a, and, and he's no spring chicken, that guy. Okay. But he was really motoring along. And I figured, man, if he can do that, I should get going. And that got me going. And then I got involved with Cops for Kid. Pardon me, I was already involved with cop circuits, but I started to get more active, mm-hmm. riding with them to the extent that I could, as well as fundraising with them. And so I, I used a bit of that exercise stuff uh, to actually help me, but it actually helped the cause as well. Yes. And it doesn't do me no harm to go out and pedal 20 or 50 kilometers. And uh, the last two years, I made it from here to uh, Soyuz wow. uh, on their day one campaign. I don't do the whole thousand kilometers like those diehards do, <laughs> but I do day one. Okay, so... So let's talk about that. Is is it uh, so? Cliff was obviously uh, an inspiration for you, but do you think activity is 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 that a part of your daily, weekly regimen? Like we, we don't talk enough about how to stay active. Is that is that something that's important to you too? Yeah, and and picking something that you like doing. Uh, <laughs> maybe funny story, but I'm right now literally replacing my driveway with a whole bunch of about four thousand paver blocks and redoing and rejigging and straightening it out and leveling it out. And yeah, I could hire somebody to do that, but I love doing that work, and and so I'm just doing it myself. And it's physical in nature. Yes. Uh, it's not. I go at my own pace, and in the end, I got a bit of pride and. I straightened out those lines uh, or something like that, you know, and uh, uh, you got to figure out something that motivates you to do something. And if it's not swinging a club, then got to figure out something else. Having done the paver stones, I have to say you have to have a tiny, healthy amount of OCD and you have to be diligent with with getting sure, making sure that surface that it sits on is compact and it's not going to move. So So this is my third time of replacing these drivers. So I think I got it figured out now. Well, if you do, I got this great project over in uh, Lower Mission. Now, Al, there's there's many different organizations across the city, and 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 I think we should speak about this. I have very many. Well, I have relatives and friends and family across Western Canada, and they've retired and they haven't connected with an organization. And some of them, you know, they just go, "Well, I I don't know if I should volunteer. I don't know if there's going to be a, a spot for me. I don't know." How would you suggest, and, and it's not just people in the Okanagan, but perhaps anyone listening anywhere, um, how much does it give you back when you finally make that step? And, and, and A, what would be the first step for a lot of people to be involved with an organization, a purpose-driven organization? You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's different for every different person what, what uh, tickles their fancy or what they want to do. The first thing is maybe asking around when others are doing it. How did you get involved? What would you do? I recently had someone that asked me, and he mentioned that they wanted to, as a family, get together to start helping volunteering someplace. Could I connect them with some places? And I have, and they've already picked up the gauntlet to do some stuff. But they did not know. They're from out of town. They're here now, last several years, but they did not know all those agencies. Mm-hmm. And now they're actively behind it. And so it's not just with their effort, it's also with their dollars. And so uh, another way you might look at it, what are the issues that your family's facing or maybe the peripheral family? What Because everybody's got issues in their families, uh, in their own family or extended family. Find out the type of things where things are starting to creep up and crop up that are issues and then see who is the type of organization that's helping those. Mm-hmm. And you might not be 
board member material for all those agencies because it takes a fair bit of discipline and effort. But if you start getting involved and pay to play, donating some dollars toward that organization and seeing the result of that dollar, you will very quickly find out which organizations are doing a great job at doing what they say they're going to do or which ones are just looking for money. So you have a, that's an interesting thought because I've served on boards and I've had people, it was actually with the Big Brothers Big Sisters organization, and I had board members who said, when I asked them, why are you here? They said, well, I want to work with kids. And I said, okay, that that's great, but we're a governance board. So we're, we're planning the horizon, the future. So you're not going to have a lot of interaction with kids. And if, if so, that's something else entirely for our organization. Like you, you need to be somewhere else. And so we, I hate to say this, but plaque and whack, but <laughs> we would, we would do that with them because it just seemed like you are in the wrong role because a lot of people that are on boards don't understand you're trying to chart the course for the organization. And I think too many of them, you know, based on the size sometimes too, they don't understand that this, the board has to create that, that infrastructure and there's different people to do the work. Now in some, that's just not happening because it's too small, but do you have any thoughts on that? Well, if their board oversight is just on governance, but it's also about helping the executive to do their job, mm. and the executive job is often raising funds. Right. So if they aren't the ones that are putting some money toward it, so they follow by examples, don't expect the others to do it. Right. And so if you are, and I've been in organizations where, you know, they say, they, they talk the talk, but the walk doesn't follow, especially on the funding part. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what cause it is, uh, local, bigger or national, whatever here. So you can get the most enjoyment. Okay. And Canada's got a, a very generous, you know, tax system for donating dollars or trying to figure out how you can preserve your tax Instead of paying taxes, uh, especially uh, when people are selling their businesses or other things like that, there's lots of ways in which you can engage in a tax-effective way to have the most impact dollar-wise. And pick a project that you would have some interest in going visiting sometime. Or maybe you're not the person doing all the work, but going visiting like we did when we did some work in Africa mm-hmm. uh, on building health health facilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't make it to visit them because it was COVID, but we hope to be there in this next year to see, see the results of what was built. Excellent. Okay. Al, I'm noticing your cadence of speech. You're thumping on the table here. You're a very passionate <laughs> individual. Really? Yeah. Nobody's supposed to see that. We're on radio. <laughs> So uh, my question for you is, and, and I've served on di- uh, different boards and different things, and, and I, I like to think I'm a very composed individual, but I love a pace. I love quickness. I, I, I want things to happen. What happens when things don't happen quick enough for Al? D- is there a different side of Al that comes out? Are you not a good person to have in the meeting then? Or, or do you know how to, to work through that? I think... Uh, one of the things I do, and I, I mean, people that work with me today in the, on a volunteer basis know that if they say something's going to take two years, I say, well, why not a year? Right. Okay, so I, I just increase, decrease the bandwidth time period that people think they have. It may end up being two years, but if we start thinking a little bit faster, a little bit quicker, why not sooner? If you end up, at, it'd be far worse if you end up at two years, now you're three years mm-hmm. because you didn't set the pace faster. And so I will always be that person that'll say, why not a little bit quicker? Why not a little bit bigger? Right. Why not look broader? That's just, I think, a style. It doesn't always work, but but uh, there's no sense in hurting trying. So I, I was reading in a book, and, and it, it talked about, and it felt like the book was talking to me, but it was about how people who have managed to pull things out of the fire at the last possible minute, which I've done numerous times because I've been in media most of my life, and just manage to pull something out at the last possible minute, which drives a lot of people in my life crazy. I've actually had to set in my mind fake timelines, exactly the way you said, because I needed to increase, like I, I knew I had a week to do something. So I said, okay, well, I'm gonna be done by Tuesday because that's the drop dead date. And it saved me numerous times. I've only done this recently. <laughs> So, so it's interesting you say that because in organizations where there might not even be metrics or measurements or even deadlines, and unless you create them, nothing can happen. Right. Like 
you know, I'll give you an example of something that happened. Um, as you know, we did the uh, uh, thank you gala for the first responders in the Valley here on November 13th. We had pre-booked a date a year earlier. Mm-hmm. And that was two weeks after the, um, uh, the passport system was fully in effect in BC. And so at least people could go to places like that. And right. you would know that everybody going to that event is probably also vaxxed at that time here. Okay. Which is another whole topic. Anyway, but... But we knew that we had this date, and either we use the date or we lose it. Mm-hmm. And had we not gone ahead with that date to do it here, it would have been, we don't know if we would have actually pulled it off. But we had very tight timeline from concept start, like middle of September, to delivering a full event, which had 375 people at it uh, two months later. Normally, these big events take a lot of planning, but we just, you know, we went for it all out, and we just knew we had to deliver. And even though there, some of us are scrambling at the last minute, uh, we got it done. And, uh, <laughs> but we didn't have a lot of leeway on things, and we had to figure out how we're going to invite 100 honorees mm-hmm. that we're honoring without knowing who they were right. to be at the event. And so we just mobilized a bunch of other people to try to help us find those, those people, and it, it, it worked. Okay. <laughs> that was a fun night. Sometimes you just got to go. Yep. So Al, you've you retired in 2015. You've uh, decided to take on a lot of uh, charitable, purpose-driven organizations. Help them out. Use your business knowledge in a way that's very constructive for these organizations. Because we all know money moves mountains at times. Yes. Enough money, anyway. Is uh, for people listening that have the means, and um, th- there's many of those people across the Okanagan. They, yes. they live in beautiful homes. And yes, I'm talking to you. Um, now, there is a perhaps maybe a challenge, um, might not be the right word, but how important is it for people that have the means, have the resources? Um, but again, if, if you've created this wealth and you watch your wealth and it's a scorecard for how well you're doing, at some point, you know, there, there's probably not enough that you would ever spend in your lifetime or maybe even your kid's lifetime, but they're still constructed in such a way that that money is mine and mine alone. And who knows what could happen next? What would you say to them to say, you need to do more with your money? So how could we get them to release some funds and maybe get into the act of doing that? Because I know it's done wonders for, for, people like you, Dave Crisco, and, and many others I've spoken to, but how, how, would you, how would you get them to start thinking that way? So I think that uh, the people you mentioned would have been uh, people that have actually led with their own funding, okay? So they had an ability to have some funding, and they led. They weren't just asking others for that. And one of the things I'm, I'm kind of proud of since my retirement, because uh, anybody can write a check for any amount that they have or want to give. But it's can you actually convince others to come along with you? And I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that for every $1 we put into a local project, community-wise, that uh, we've been able to raise at least another $2 in that area. So one becomes three by working together. If you look at foundations, if you look at the national landscape, the average, the average of foundations is a 3 to 5% that they give of their dollar values, right, per year. Well, wealth is accumulated at an exorbitant rate, uh, you know, as the uh, generational transfer of, of, of assets and stuff like that comes. But I think that if the parents or the lead of that or the, you know, whoever started that part of it starts getting their kids involved and showing them how to do it, not just saying, well, there's a money there, they can spend it afterwards. They will never do what mom and dad did if they don't see mom and dad actively being involved in something that makes a difference. And I think the best thing they can do is find something that'll appeal to their kids and get them actively involved or reverse, find something they're interested in and get the kids involved because they got to see the action and that there's actually joy in actually giving away that money, not holding onto it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, at the end, we can't take that with us. And if you set up the family not to be generous, I mean, really generous when mm-hmm. they can, mm-hmm. then I don't think you've done everything you could do. Is karma a thing, you think? It does come back. Okay, whatever you do does come around, uh, whether you whether you believe in, in, in faith or the reward or the generosity. Generosity helps. It doesn't always work out right away at the time. Mm-hmm. 
but I feel incredible best that we've gone from project to project and not knowing what the future holds for any of us, but that we can look back and I know our kids and our grandchildren can look at that and say, hmm, that's how they did it, and hopefully have them start early right. instead of waiting until they're rich or until they've got money. It's interesting. Uh, I was speaking to one of the clients of the food bank. I was lucky enough to be uh, writing for the Be an Angel program. So I interviewed a couple dozen of the food bank clients to get an idea of the stories so that donors could figure out, who am I helping? And and one couple in particular, they were uh, recently uh, emigrated from, from Africa. And uh, I said, what would you tell somebody who had the power to give, but maybe hasn't given already? And he very eloquently explained, he says, you know, you might have something in your bank account, which gives you some joy, but he says, your small donation would give us any, and he raised his arms really wide, had this big grin on his face. I get goosebumps thinking about it. It would give us this much joy and my family. And he says, that's why you should give. You know, it's, it's, there's organizations and foundations that are set up in what's called endowment, which is you give the money and they live off of the interest. And that's a principle that many, mostly public foundations work with here in that part of here. But if you're a private foundation or a public foundation and you're waiting uh, for a rainy day to come up before you start giving, mm-hmm. the last two years have actually really been a rainy day for everybody. And if you haven't seen that your pattern of given has escalated during this time period when there's much more need, maybe you haven't seen it always because you've been tucked in your home and you don't go out there, but there's a huge need here. And unfortunately, I think the stats will show that the giving people are a creature habit and they keep on giving what they've been given or less. Mm-hmm. And they don't accelerate when the need is greater. And if, if there never is a rainy day like covid to rock the socks of people to start thinking about what they can look and find, find them before they come and ask you. Okay, because why are you waiting? Mm-hmm. You know, find the cause that you can get behind. There's many of them out there. So Al, uh, someone who's retired well, um, and, and, and you know, you seem vibrant and healthy. And, and it, you know, it's interesting that somebody that's still probably working harder than you worked when you were working... <laughs> It's uh, interesting how much that gives you back, but that's not my question. My question is a fun one. Um, Past or present, uh, any musical concert event that you've been to that you can speak about that, that, you know, gave you something back or a concert or, or an artist that you would love to see going forward? (laughs) I am the wrong person to ask that. (laughs) I can't even remember the songs that I see or hear. Okay, uh, it has to be on the wall before I'd even remember the words. I, I'm terrible at that. Uh, it's a running joke in our family. That is it, it? It is. I am terrible at that. I love going to the musicals. I love going to Clone Actor Studio, listening to the stuff and the excellence that is happening there when they're doing their songs. But literally five minutes afterwards, I will not hardly remember a word, except I'll remember the feeling. I'll remember right. the motivation. And that's what I like, but just... Sorry, <laughs> but, but Clone Actor Studio. So my daughter acted in the Clone Actor Studio. So I'm I'm very proud of that fact. But you know, it's interesting. You talk about I think live events as they come back, and and it was just the other day I saw a very intimate concert put on by Chloe Davidson. Hmm. Uh, look her up in your Apple yep. and and all that kind of stuff. She had this. Um, Almost an yeah, a violin player and 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 slightly awkward, but but cute awkward. Like she was, she was just speaking and she was so authentic. And I was sitting there, and I couldn't get over the feeling I had of just, I I'm so happy I went. Like I was so happy at the end of the night, the feeling I got from such an event where I went, you know, I I was sitting at home. It was a Friday, and and I was done with the week, and I. I said to Jen, we got to go. We, we said we'd go, we're going to go. And I'm so happy I went. So Chloe was actually part one of four people that was our entertainment at our event. Come on. And I, I, w- I heard about them. I looked at them. We actually went to their concert and they said, we got to get her. We got to get them involved. So we got them all on board and it was, it was a great event. See, but I don't remember, remember the words, <laughs> except that she said at the beginning, this song is very personal. It's about me talking to, about my mom. Okay, so I remember that, but I, but I don't, unfortunately, I don't remember all the words, but 
it was motivating. But sometimes the feeling they, they leave you is is really the the key about that. And for me, she brought up her uh, her spouse, her partner, and they they played a song. And what was interesting to me was, and I could still feel the the love in the room, is they looked at each other when they sang, and they just the the words. Again, I don't remember the words, but I remember the feeling right. it conveyed, and that was the most important part. And it can be almost any type of arts. I mean, we've had the privilege of being able to watch her, her granddaughter grow up from a three- or four-year-old girl taking dance lessons, okay, to now teaching it and watching the generations go by and then seeing the new classes doing the classes there and seeing, oh, that was like our daughter six years ago or ten years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So anything that kids will do, in a structured environment that makes them do something out of their comfort zone, be it dance, be it singing, be it work, mm-hmm. that's, that's, uh, will help them. It won't hurt them. And it'll, it'll more than often help them um, deal with issues that they have to deal with. And also allow them to put energies toward something that mm-hmm. they love, mm-hmm. be it hockey, be it whatever. So I, I failed with the last question, and I might fail again here with the next one, Al. <laughs> but I'm going to keep going because that's who I am. Um, there's people have uh and and again anecdotally i saw it with my father he worked harder later in life than he did uh earlier in life because he found a job he loved he was a consultant for municipalities he would he would parachute in much like ramatusi's doing these days um our ex-city manager who he would he goes in and he fixes things like he, he's going to fix Lytton, he's fixed uh, Revelstoke, he's he's fixing oh, things, and and I find it's interesting that you know my father and I saw this, he started accelerating his work, and my mom started decelerating because she was she was a nurse, RN, wonderful at her job, worked emergency and and just was done like fundamentally done, wanted to spend more time with grandkids traveling all that kind of stuff and there was a there was a void that was created because my dad was like i get to do what i've always wanted to do and she was like well you go do that and that's fine in in your life do you see that as well that it seems like uh you know in certain marriages sometimes somebody finds something they have they love how do you bring that other person along i guess um, I'm very fortunate that uh, I'm almost married 48 years. Uh, it's 25.2 million minutes uh, at this moment in time. But that my wife is actually Irene has actually picked up on a number of things herself as well. Mm-hmm. So she's volunteering with uh, f- uh, food for thought and how to get food to the other ones. Or she used to work on the street when they are allowed to uh, to be dealing with the girls on the street, you know, and giving them supplies. That uh, overlaps with um, some of the other causes out there. Mm-hmm. And where a common, we have to figure out where a common part is, which happens to always be kids, helping kids or families in need. Okay, right. so that was an easy thing to do. I'm probably doing more of that work, but she's been great with the kids and the grandchildren and done that, that's that's what she's done and she's excelled at that, you know. Um, uh, and uh, so I think that uh, you got to figure out some things and where you can do it together. I don't pretend to be the best at this, but... I do love going to events. I do love going to, uh, this weekend we're going to the Vancouver Prayer Breakfast. There'll be a thousand people there. Uh, and and Jimmy Patterson's the speaker. And so learning from those that have that have been there, meeting the people that are working just as hard as they've always have been, um, and, and finding the people that are the movers and the shakers, I love doing that. Right. And then that draws motivation for me to too. You know, I've hit, you know at, at seven years old, I got to look at what I'm doing for whatever amount of years I've got left in my life. Right. But if I can look to people like that and they're still working on it, you know, then I, I've got role models to go after. Jimmy's doing okay. Yeah, he is. <laughs> so Al, you've, you've been part of the, the homelessness space and, and you've been on the earth long enough to have a, you know, a perspective, one could say. In the current, and we're going to go federal, provincial, local, municipal, what grade would you give each one of them, say, in the last four years for what they've done on the homelessness side of things and maybe either whether it be money, uh, grants, uh, which are sometimes the same thing, and and as well as just programs, building, that kind of thing. So federal government, what, what mark would you give them? I think um, they are addressing the issue, but they're only predominantly uh, dealing with the issue with money. Mm-hmm. Are they giving guidance enough? I don't know if they are, but they collectively were the problem at the federal 
cabinet level and politician and the local ones because they they two feed off each other. Mm-hmm. I think the municipalities have actually been the ones that have actually had to work the hardest in it because they're front line mm-hmm. and they always and haven't had their resources, but they certainly deal with the day to day problems. Um, and and so I think the I don't know quite how to rate them because I'd have to look at numbers to figure that out here. But I do know that if 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 people are not investing into going upstream or trying to prevent the issue from being there two and three and five years from now, if they're just fixing the band-aids, um, who are we taking off the street? Mm-hmm. How many seats can we have that are no longer on the street? Or how many you know people? Can, that's that's uh, to me that's a bit of a band-aid solution because you're trying to pull them out of the problem, uh, line out of sight, out of line, you know. But if you can actually start working on things that'll be down the road effective for those people. So as an example, uh, uh, there's a, somebody told me about the, the way he's concerned about the working poor. So they're not homeless today, but many, many people, and, and COVID has actually exacerbated this, they are one emergency away, be it a health, be it a domestic, be it a work, be it whatever. Mm-hmm. One crisis one accident they're one crisis away from starting down that spiral pretty quickly we're in two or three or one year they could be there what are we doing to help those people who aren't there on the street yet today preventing from them getting there mm-hmm. be it a job be it work being upgrading your skills and so i don't know what each of them are doing on those areas but if i was to place a challenge that's what are they doing upstream because mm-hmm. governments as a whole deal with things that are in this mandate of their elected time period. Right. But they're not looking beyond their current mandate, generally. No, that's true. And and a lot can be said for fixing uh, issues before they fall into, uh, you know, and and it was brought up couch surfing. You know, you have a, say, an 18-year-old who's couch surfing from place to place to place, sleeping at a buddy's because he doesn't have a place of his own. Well, that person is very much vulnerable to heading into the streets because yes. at some point the couches and, and the generosity is going to run out and they just go into this endless cycle and then it just takes one episode of anything that can set them off. And family pressure, be it examples or whatever, uh, I've heard there's a program in Vernon where they're actually looking at um, who are the ones that have gotten in trouble and they're on the streets and they're 15, 16, 18, 20 years old now. But little Johnny is sitting at home and he's 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. Is he going to follow down the same pathway? Right. Why wait until he's old enough to, to be full-time in trouble? Or are we doing something to help make sure that we start course correct that family situation in one way, shape, or form? That's what I mean by going upstream, mm-hmm. trying to figure it out ahead of time instead of trying to work at just plucking them out of the stream. Well, and, and with this new uh, law coming out that you're able to uh, to have possession of illicit drugs, I think it's two and a half grams. Somebody told me that it's just one grain of fentanyl within that that can actually kill you. Um, so, you know, it, it's a very interesting time and one fraught with challenges. But I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, that the, could that potentially lead to more? I actually think so. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a former cop. Okay, so I live on the other side of the agenda for that, uh, that part of it here. But I, uh, it, it can't be helpful. Uh, and so, what are you going to do to make them active, productive human beings? Sometimes it takes some tough love, but get them active, be it sports, be it activities, or work, mm-hmm. um, or, or learning, or education. I mean, if they apply themselves in education, right, to higher learning, they'll, they'll learn, do it better. But I don't know what it, how to motivate because everybody's different. Mm-hmm. I just know that in my life, that's what I've seen work. Helping somebody else is is really the key. And I, I wish and I hope that, that more parents give the venue for their kids to be able to help somebody else out. Because, uh, you know, I've seen it with my kids where luckily I have one, one child, child, 18-year-old, who's uh, heading off to do volunteer work because he's seen the power of helping and, he, and it's given him so much back too. The whole not-for-profit sector is, is uh, <laughs> it's a big sector. There's 4 million people work in that sector. Pardon me, there's about 2 million people that work in the sector and about 4 million volunteers mm-hmm. in that sector, right? And so it's a huge part of our economy and it's growing. 
And so if people are ever looking for uh, opportunities and some of them were global companies that will you certainly learn mm-hmm. by what they do around the world experiences and so just challenge people to figure out something that makes them motivated and happy and pushes them pushes their buttons a little bit to do better mm-hmm. now al you were uh an ex-cop uh how long were you on the R- rcmp nope uh calgary city police uh i my first job was with the Royal Bank. Uh, I was transferred to Calgary in 1971 and uh, happened to walk past the police station as a 19-year-old uh, kid. Uh, I was sort of interested in policing and I walked into the police station and how'd you like your job? And at the time they were being paid almost double what bankers were. So I said, I can cut my hair. And I became a cop when I was 20 and one week. So I was a pretty young cop in Calgary. I loved it. I People tell me I still think like a cop. Um, I can't stop looking at license plates and people, you know, um, and I loved that job and I did that for six years from, from 1972 to 78. Mm-hmm. And then I had, uh, I guess I was a wannabe entrepreneur back then. Cause I had about half a dozen different sideline jobs. It's mm-hmm. called moonlighting. Yes. And, uh, so I needed more time off. So I became a fireman instead and I joined the Calgary fire department and a little bit more regular shift. And if you get lucky, you can sleep some of the time at work, you know? And um, so that was a fireman until 81, and then we moved out to BC, and that's when I moved out here. So interesting. Now, there's been certain positions I've held in my life. Uh, one was a, a, on the volunteer ambulance hmm. that that put marks on you, on, on your soul, on your DNA yep. that can never be erased. Did you find that with being a police officer, like, that it just it fundamentally changed, you know, good or bad, but it, but it changed you? Yes, especially in the area of uh, domestics, um, seeing serious car accidents and stuff like that here. But I think that as a whole, when I look back, remember this 30-some years ago now that I was a cop, right? But I now view the lens by working with the cops, with Cops for Kids and, and the, the charity work that we're doing in different areas here. I see how much more challenging it is now than I ever had it. I mean, we we were in a, in a spotlight of all these, you know, uh, videos and everything that's coming out here. The 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 spotlight is on everybody, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, society is very different than it was back then. So they have a very very tough job to do, and one of the things we have to do is figure out how do we help offload some of the things that aren't really related to policing mm-hmm. legal part of it here, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's something that. The, our our community, our city, our local RCMP here, they struggle with that because probably half of the stuff they're doing has got nothing to do with policing. It, it is. It's solving somebody's personal problem with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And and it, you know what the um, having seen, you know, um, different interactions with the police, uh, just from afar, you know, whether it be in a you know, in a downtown environment or anywhere in the city, you know, they're, they're trying and, and they've, they've got extreme caseloads. And I know that there's a lot of pressure on them because obviously, as you said it, there's a lot of exposure that they're, they are the be all end all. Like they, they are society's bandaid for everything. And I think that is exhausting and, and it can't be good for, just turnover, mental stress, and you know, long-term disability, like a whole host of things that I would imagine they go through just because the the pace is in inexcusable, really. And when you look at when if you think of police, fire, and ambulance, uh, when you call nine one one, you're in trouble, whether it's real trouble or you're not happy with somebody, mm-hmm. and they get a call. It's police, fire, and ambulance. There has to be a better way of not just having those only being mm-hmm. responses. And it happens to be that in most cases, the police is the one that gets most of those calls. Right. Because they're dealing with people issues. Mm-hmm. And whether it's mental health challenges or people issues or neighborhood disputes or road rage or something, they just happen to be the convenient first person you want to get with the most authority to come and fix your problem. Right. We as a society have to do a better job of evening out that workload, be it mental health, be it health be it other things uh, to um, uh, help help them along. And uh, hopefully uh, some of the future projects will involve some of those things. Deputizing Al Hildebrand is not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I still think like a cop, <laughs> but also a business guy. And I, I think if, I, if there's anything there, I, I'm using every bit of skill sets that I've done in the past uh, 
to, um, to help other causes move forward. So Al, we've, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, big, heavy <laughs> matters here. I uh, want to lighten it up a little bit. Obviously, you moved here from Calgary. This has become your home. Um, what parts of, of Kelowna have you seen visitors? Because obviously you get visitors. What parts do they just, like, they're still wide-eyed and we seem to forget as we live here longer and longer and longer. Like, what what things have, have your visitors said that just still blow them away? Well, if you can look at the marketing materials that, like, the Kelowna Tourism or the Okanagan Tourism Board shows out, I love sending that out to others that are from other places and they say, wow. And then I look at that thing, well, oh, I haven't visited all those places myself yet. You know, right. so do you, yeah. do you get engaged locally? And do you do those things or do you just stay in your house wherever you're at and do your golfing and whatever here? But I think that on, on my front, when I take a look at all the wealth and I take a look at the expertise that's moving to the valley, um, we got to figure out how to engage them in something. Mm-hmm. And not... They know how to engage on a golf course. They know how to engage in their social and going out for dinner and that. But we have to plug them into our community, just like they're plugged in at home where they've always been. Because in many cases, maybe the next 5, 10, 20 years, well, this will be their home, more so than where they were raised. And I think it's a matter of just trying to get them plugged in and doing stuff and having fun and getting connected and taking them to places where they get engaged. We've often taken people to the clone actor studio just as their guests and said, I never knew this existed here. This mm-hmm. is a level of professionalism I never expected in little old Kelowna. And whatever, whatever venue you choose for taking people to it, get them engaged. Mm-hmm. No. And that's the key. And I think, um, because I work a lot with, uh, the food bank, I've seen volunteers that come in and it's their social network. Mm-hmm. Like it honestly is, a way for them because you're distracted sorting food and then oh uh oh your name's Lori. oh Lori, what do you, where do you live what do you do what do you like to do when you're not volunteering and and these conversations spring up out of nowhere and i find that and and a common cause which is you know empathy and and just trying to help your your fellow person is the key to that whole thing where that where it's a like-minded people working away in a volunteer environment where they they do get, get to connect and, you know, the last couple of years when people were hidden behind masks, if they're public in this part of here, uh, interesting situation. I was volunteering at a, at a clinic uh, for last uh, last year, and there was somebody I was trying to connect with, and I did not know that that person was on the same shift at the same time. We just happened to be at different doors. But when I was looking for that person, I found out she was there, but we didn't connect because we were behind the mask. And so now as everybody's coming out of COVID the last two years mm-hmm. and getting more engaged again to different levels, um, people are looking to see what they can do because they, they're tired of sitting on their own couch. And, and so try to figure out how to engage people into things that is uh, worth for them something to do and get going uh, is now is the right time to be doing some of those things. Mm-hmm. Especially because I think it's going to give them so much back. Yep. Remember, in this time period, they're now two years older. <laughs> they are. I did the math. <laughs> this one, it, it bothered me. It was on uh, Saturday. I was speaking with friends. They have a, a younger daughter. Um, she had an episode at about, ele- well, I knew it was a bad one when they said exactly when it happened. It was 11.37 a.m. or p.m. at night. Um, she developed a nosebleed. She, she uh, fainted unconscious um and they they phoned the ambulance and again i and before i say anything i'm not throwing anybody under the bus so to speak i'm just i i just think when we when we raise these things hopefully something good comes out of it so um phoned the ambulance they said listen based on where you live we cannot get somebody up there uh anytime soon uh we are overloaded already um, can you transport them? And they said, we're really not sure because she's unconscious. Then they finally just decide, okay, we got to get him down to the hospital. So they get her down to the hospital. Uh, they sit in the weight room for four and a half hours, lots of activity, you know, lots going on. Again, you know, I, I'm not saying anybody's sitting there, you know, having a smoke break. I'm saying everybody was flat out 
it seems like we have a, a healthcare crisis and, and, you know, they eventually, again, it worked out, knock on wood, that, that all worked out. It, it might not have, but it, it did on this particular occasion, but it raises the alarm for me that are we, you know, through COVID, um, have we gotten better or worse when it comes to healthcare? Because you, you're you're a man among the community. You're moving through a lot of organizations, and uh, healthcare is going to become a bigger issue as we age, and a lot of our population does. Do you feel vulnerable in this community, or do you feel like we're we're still making amends? I'm fortunate in that I've I've met a lot of the frontline service workers in different areas, and our our event happen connected with all the social agency, but also the big ones. So QHR. Health, you're talking, no, I'm talking about in our our event that we did, the oh, thank you event, right? I see. Where we got to meet the social agencies and see how's, who's all working there. But obviously the big three are the police, fire, and ambulance, mm-hmm. and then the hospital, right. you know, and that area. So, all, and I know people from that work in each one of those sectors, okay? But I've seen in them personally how much stress they are under, Mm-hmm. that we've had to really rely on them and they've carried the backbone a lot of things when some, most of us have had most of the time a safe place to be, mm-hmm. but they're dealing with emergencies all the time. And I don't know what's happened at the individual situation here, but I do know that in general, they are all feeling the stress at a totally different level than they were, say, five or 10 years ago. Just like I mentioned, the policing now is very different than it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, this last couple of years has just raised that bar significantly. And I don't know if, if they've had a break from that yet, because it's still going at the same pace. Right. Resources aren't there. People are checking out a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. you know, don't need that headache all of the rest of their lives. And we're losing, we're losing good healthcare practitioners and people because of that stress. And um, we're not, we're not building and breeding and educating them fast enough mm-hmm. to replace the ones that we're losing. And, and I raise this, and again, sometimes an uneducated question is 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 okay. Here's one. It, it feels like there seems to be, based on, um, and again, anecdotally, the administrative bulk and volume has uh, been exponential. And the boots on the ground, we're talking the doctors, nurses, uh, healthcare assistant, like all of those people, less focus, less... Um, I guess less money and resources, and 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 again, this is all anecdotal, and this is just walking through the community and having conversations. But do you see it the same way that there's maybe a, a stronger push towards you know documentation, regulation, policy, administrative function, and less on we need more people in the trenches? Like, is that? I think that anytime you get a bureaucracy of any type, and remember these agencies we're talking about have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the province and area. That bureaucracy is set up there for a certain reason, but it doesn't always accomplish the goal. Mm-hmm. Unless you're working in the trenches yourself, uh, I would think that many of those leaders, be it government or head people, may not do the same rules if they were actually having to do a job at the other end. But they have to actually try to figure out how to lessen that load or get other people doing that. Because if... If it takes you four hours to do your job in a day and takes you five hours to actually document what you did in those four hours, uh, you, you, you'll you never succeed. Right. And so they have to figure out how they can distribute that load to other methods or people or systems. I don't know what the answer is. I just know that you there's a tremendous amount of paperwork in all those positions. And then when things go wrong, um, they're spending a lot of time defending themselves. Mm-hmm. I think we put Al Hildebrandt in back in healthcare too. <laughs> <laughs> Does it come with a paycheck? <laughs> we're we're going to work on that. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, we only have the room till six, unfortunately. So uh, I so appreciate uh, the time and the energy, and and uh, we've had a couple chuckles. And we've covered some uh, topics. So I so appreciate you spending the time with me. Thank you. It's good to be here and also good to hear about all the local things that are taking place in our community and what you're doing on this uh, radio broadcast. It's great to be bragging about all the things that are happening in our community. It, it's a great place to live, isn't it? Yes, like, it I is. mean, when, when we, 
I mean, I love sending uh, weather reports to my friends in Calgary and Edmonton just because, you know, especially in Edmonton because they have a better hockey team than, than my Calgary Flames right now. Um, but I, I feel lucky every time I drive down and I see that lake and I see the uh, the mountains and, and just, you know, and on a sunny day, man, are people happy. Yes. <laughs> they are so we, excited. We are, we are blessed to be living here, uh, however we got here, whether mm-hmm. it's a long time ago or born here or recent. Uh, we are um, we're very truly a blessed people, and uh, it's our job to make sure we make it better for the next generations. Yeah, well, let's, let's get you back on because uh, I think we have way more topics to cover. So thanks again, Al Hildebrandt. Great to be here. Thank you.